Pod Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sean, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for a breakdown of The Sandman, Issue 5, Passengers. I'm joined by my two superhuman co-hosts, Ben. Hey, hey. And Ashley. Hello. On each episode, we'll be deconstructing that issue into six separate sections. First, we do the rundown, where we let you know who created the issue and the catch-up to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of that week's issue, and we follow that up with the deep dive when we really get into everything that happens. In our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and non-Morpheus character. And today, my little dreamies, we are joined once again by Alan Mowers and Kyle Stainbrook of the Min Max podcast. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, hello. Thank you for having us once again. Yes, so great to have you back on the pod. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome. Uh, For those of you that missed last week's episode, Alan is co-host and producer of the Min Max podcast, where he, Ashley, and Kyle explore the intersection of gaming, nerd culture, and theology. Professionally, he has spent the last 10 years in media production and marketing, is currently serving as creative director for three companies in the internet marketing space. And Kyle also graces us with his presence once again. As a reminder, he is co-host on the MinMax podcast, a deep lover of the social sciences, and an amateur folklorist in his free time. So there you have it. Six sections to get through, so let's get going. Ashley, over to you for the rundown. Yes, okay, so... Writing by Neil Gaiman, no shock. Penciling by Sam Keith. Cover art by Dave McKean. Inking by Malcolm Jones III, so no Mike Dringenberg this time. When I finally got his name down, they changed it on me. Coloring (laughs) by Daniel Vazo. Lettering by Todd Klein. Assistant editing by Art Young. And editing by Karen Berger. Mr. Miracle, created by Jack Kirby. Thanks, Ashley. So for the catch-up, Dream has successfully acquired two of his three stolen items from when he was imprisoned. His sand pouch was retrieved with the help of the warlock John Constantine. And Dream has just won his helm back after defeating the demon Karanzan, playing the world's oldest game in hell. He is now on his way to get his last item, the Dream Ruby. Sean, what's this story all about today? All right. So issue five of Sandman is a tension-building interlude as Morpheus and John Dee each travel as passengers toward Dream's Ruby, neither aware that they are on a collision course with one another. We open in the midst of John Dee's escape from Arkham Asylum. Dee has incapacitated a guard and acquired his gun, but as he sneaks away, he stops for an amiable chat with Jonathan Crane, the Scarecrow, who's pretended to hang himself as a twisted April Fool's joke, with the punchline being the actually hanged guard in the next room. D explains his plot to recover his ruby, drive the world mad, and be made its ruler. Scarecrow asks him to promise to tell about it when D is inevitably returned to Arkham. D escapes by climbing out a window and over a fence, where he takes a random passerby, Rosemary, hostage on the road, and forces her to drive him to his ruby. Meanwhile, at the Justice League International building in New York, 
Scott Free, a.k.a. Mr. Miracle, is experiencing a nightmare of his childhood on the dystopian war world of Apocalypse. Just before he meets his doom, the Sandman appears and brings Scott safely back to consciousness. An unusually friendly dream learns from Scott and his fellow Justice Leaguer, the Martian Manhunter, that the ruby, held as a trophy from the League's battles, is in storage in the town of Mayhew in upstate Gotham. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Morpheus appears to the Manhunter in the form of a big floating head, Lazoril, the Martian version of Dream, and it's pretty dang cool. Back on the road with John and Rosemary, John very succinctly explains his origins as the corny Silver Age supervillain Dr. Destiny. He explains how he manipulated the makeup of the ruby to make it both responsive only to him and as a tool to power his machines before his ability to dream was taken from him and he was locked away in Arkham. Throughout the encounter, Rosemary is increasingly sympathetic toward John, who generally seems a bit confused and out of touch, but mostly harmless, even offering him a coat of her husband's. Back in the dream world, Morpheus hitches a ride through the minds of dreamers as he zeroes in on the storage unit in Mayhew. He arrives before John and finds the ruby, but when he tries to use it, the ruby reacts, releasing a powerful and painful burst of energy that leaves the Sandman curled up on the floor and unconscious. Outside, our parallel stories finally converge as Rosemary and John arrive at the warehouse. Before he goes inside, John callously shoots Rosemary, who had shown him only kindness, point-blank with his stolen pistol. Unconcerned with the unconscious body of the Dream King, John D. claims his ruby at last, and as the issue ends, John enters a diner where he orders coffee to wait as he puts it for the end of the world. All right, so I got to leave the coffin behind, I got to sidestep the knives, leap through the flames, not be there when the bomb goes off, make sure that when the floor vanishes, I don't fall into the acid pit, when I'm all done, I just have to say my name. Wait, what's my name? Oh, I got to go look it up. I'll, I'll be right back. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yeah, sounds like someone fell. Gotcha! This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. All right, so as Sean said, we have a um, a lot going on here. We're, we're introduced to a, a whole slew of new characters. We see uh, someone experiencing a nightmare in a really vivid way that you might not kind of, you're just dropped right into it, um, which is really interesting. And so I thought it would be good to kind of place where we are in the DC universe, once again, coming back to that. Um, so who are some of these characters that we are being introduced to? So we can start in Arkham and looking over to our guest. Anybody want to give the quick, what is Arkham? 
I am happy to take this one. Uh, basically, Arkham is the Swiss cheese of like mental health institutions in the DC universe because <laughs> you can absolutely put everyone in there, but somehow, like rats, they manage to find their way out. Like it doesn't matter. I don't care how good the security is. Uh, somehow, all the major villains manage to get out of Arkham. Uh, so it is a the technical term is Arkham Asylum, so it is a mental health institution that is tri- that is there for the rehabilitation and the betterment of its residents. Uh, that is the nice way to say it. It basically is a glorified prison, and it doesn't do its job particularly well, <laughs> as on display here with John D. very easily making his way out of the asylum. Well, this isn't the first time that Neil Gaiman has explored Arkham either. He uses this as a setting in Black Orchid as well, correct? I'm remembering that correctly. Has Ooh, anyone else read, read this? Black Orchid in quite a while. <laughs> okay. But again, it's one of those places that where we, you know, we 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 talked about this with going to hell, right? Like mm-hmm. continuity, DC universe, gotta fit it in, right, Sean? Oh yeah, it's a uh, it's it's you know as dysfunctional as it is it's one of those like wonderful comic book locations right it's just like so fun to see those like weird uh cavernous interiors and sort of looks like a dungeon generally you know the way it's portrayed right it's fun to draw fun to look at so question for you sean would the joker not have like if when when neil gaiman went to dc and said where's the joker and they said he's not in Arkham. He had to put him not in Arkham in 1989 when this issue would have come out. Like, is it that detailed? Or, like, what would that have looked like? Yeah. So, Neil Gaiman, from what I've read in some very casual research, wanted to use the Joker originally uh, in this opening sequence. Who wouldn't? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the the Joker in DC continuity was supposed to be dead at the time or at least missing. So he oh. was forbidden from actually using the character and used the Scarecrow instead. Got it. But the Scarecrow is a great character. Great character. Um, and, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, you might remember Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. the Scarecrow, um, from some really cool portrayals in Batman Begins, the movie, uh, or Batman the Animated Series. Um, But the character himself is pretty straightforward. So Professor Jonathan Crane is a psychologist who specializes in fear and phobias. He develops a powerful mind-altering chemical toxin that can make people experience their deepest fears. His professional interests become an obsession, and he begins to experiment in more and more extreme ways, eventually losing his university position and turning to a life of crime to fund his research. And he's a pretty, like, one-note character overall, right? Like, um... He's got this long history in comics. Like he was created by the original Batman creative team of Bob Finger, or sorry, Bill Finger and Bob Kane, all the way back in 1941. Um, and I think the reason he's kind of stuck around so long is just that the visuals are so so cool. You know, he's got that long angular body, sort of like demonic scarecrow costume, and of course, like the 
hallucinatory effect of the fear toxin portrayed on the page leaves a lot of room for artists to go wild and so i think like even though this character has never really changed or grown or become more complex in 80 years of stories he's still a top tier batman villain for the design potential alone amazing and then we also see two other or three other characters right we have the this granny goodness granny person oh yeah we have martian manhunter and then we have Scott Free as well. So we're seeing a lot of lot of DC, a lot of things being pulled in here. Um, you know, really, really cool. And some things that, you know, you may be familiar with seeing those in some of the movies. We've seen Martian Manhunter in a movie at some point. So, we're, we, you know, these are these are recurring characters that that happen uh, frequently in a lot of DC um, comics, movies and, and are generally well known. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, Martian Manhunter. I think he had like a little cameo in the Snyder cut of yeah, the, the Justice cut. League movie. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always liked him a lot. Uh, but the characters that I find so interesting, and you know, Neil Gaiman must have too, right? Because this Scott Free dream sequence takes like almost twenty percent of the book. It's like a four or five page dream sequence. Right. Um, and and it's it's. You can you can see that he has sort of enthusiasm for the character and the scenario, and I think that's um, warranted. So if you'd like to know a little bit more about uh, Scott Free, I can't explain that now. <laughs> I will try to make it succinct because there's so much there. But essentially, um, they are part of the work that Jack Kirby created when he came to DC in the 70s. So like in our last... Uh, episode we talked about Etrigan the Demon created by Jack Kirby. He also created this entire mythology of this war between uh, two immortal races, the new gods of uh, New Genesis, um, and then the sort of evil gods of the world of Apocalypse. And <laughs> it's a little on the nose. Yes, yes, yeah. So that but that's one of like Kirby's obsessions is sort of are these big cosmic conflicts, right? And of course, even though you have like this one like utopian community and this one like very dystopian uh community, it becomes more complicated in the portrayal of the actual characters. Like for instance, so these two worlds are at war for eons upon eons. They come to like a tentative sort of stalemate, but to cement the peace the leaders of both of these worlds, High Father on New Genesis and Dark Side on Apocalypse, uh, agree to an exchange of prisoners. So each of them gives over one of their own children. And Scott Free, the son of High Father, goes to live on uh, the world of Apocalypse. No. And, yes, yes. And Orion, uh, Dark Side's son, goes to live on new genesis so orion eventually like turns against his father and he's a he's a decent guy he's got some anger issues but he's overall a decent guy scott free is raised uh and basically tortured throughout his entire upbringing on the war world of apocalypse right he's raised in granny goodness's orphanage who we see here in this book granny goodness Uh. just one of the okay creepiest characters you could possibly imagine because she She's this figure who speaks in a lot of sort of flowery language of, of love and things like that, but she will straight up like torture people all the time. It's, and for like 
Scott Free and his wife, Big Barda, who uh, was also there on Apocalypse. They later escaped together and got married. But this is like the only sort of mother figure they have. So this conflict of like kind of wanting her approval, but understanding that she's awful sort of carries through the stories. Scott Free becomes a uh, escapes Apocalypse, moves to Earth. Uh, becomes a super escape artist and generally just wants to live a sort of like normal life with uh, his wife and kind of just hang out. Uh, but occasionally he gets pulled into this like sort of intergalactic war between his planets. Um, so yeah, really interesting character. Great stuff by Jack Kirby. Uh, you can see in the art here that Sam Keith really put in some Kirby elements. You know, that sort of bizarre uh, machinery that you see with the sort of flowing shapes and this um, really futuristic sort of metallic figures. That broad, flat face of Granny Goodness. This is all like sort of Kirby style art, which I really appreciated seeing in here. Kyle just trying to think through, you know, this, um, this like trope, right. Of like a prisoner exchange swap, you know, that kind of thing. Something that I feel like we, you see something continual like that, right. Being, being raised by like the enemy feels like one of those things that folks generally like come back to in stories, you know, throughout the ages. Is that something that you've kind of seen in your folklore studies? You know, as far as like a prisoner swap type of thing, not really, um, but it is very common in, in, especially like in Scottish folklore and Celtic folklore, um, the whole being kidnapped by fairies thing, right? Okay. Like that's a very normal uh, storytelling device. And, and it, there's just tons and tons of stories in which character, uh, main character of the story goes into something maybe kind of pokes into something that they're curious about that maybe they shouldn't be or um, a lot of the times music plays an integral role so they'll go and it'll be a really talented fiddler for example who is just out playing and then all of a sudden they disappear and they get they basically have been kidnapped by fairies and they go and they play all night at this huge party for the fairies um, and the next thing they know they wake up back in the mortal world only it's a hundred years later and mm. everybody has assumed they've been dead this whole time right um, <clears throat> so I would say at least in the realm of Scottish folklore that's probably the closest equivalent I'm trying to think of any other stories where that type of of like prisoner exchange trope comes in. If I can, I'll, I can do a quick jump in there, Kyle, because I actually have one. Give me one second. I'm actually going to grab the book that I'm referencing. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, Ashley, he's getting real nerdy over there. He's I know, getting I'm books. I'm proud of him. I'm proud of him. <laughs> this is what we want. I know. I might be really upset that he might be beating me at my own game. <laughs> so, Ashley, thinking about the um, the comic book and how it's laid out, just all of a sudden, you just go from D and you're just like dropped right into like there's a little, little boy in the... The art looks different and there's a different and like what was your initial kind of read through of that and what you were trying to figure out where you were? It really threw me off the first mm. time I ever read this issue because I, I couldn't understand what the relationship was. And all I could parse out was, OK, well, Dream knows everybody pretty intimately because mm. by virtue of the way he interacts with their worlds and their imaginations. So there's got to be, we are or we already understand that there are alternate realities, there are different worlds, et cetera. So we must be in space somewhere. But I had no clue who Scott Free was. I just knew I was terrified for him. 
Um, so then, you know, later getting some closure, a little bit of closure as to, okay, he made it out okay, and he's, he's real, quote unquote, in this world, um, and functioning properly. You know, I I didn't have any context until, you know, Sean started to give us some. So this this has been a, a personal closure <laughs> adventure for me um, because I, I had never read any comics where Apocalypse or or Scott Free had ever come up. So this was great. This was really helpful. And then, Alan, I think you mentioned that you had uh, an example kind of based off what uh, Kyle was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it actually, it's a, it's a, Scottish folktale book from the 1940s that I picked up from a small shop when we were there. And it's not so much a prisoner exchange, uh, more of a hostage situation that ends up taking uh, shape. But it's called it, the, the story is called The Seal Woman. It's from the Orkney Islands. And basically, a seal woman or self Kyle is nodding vigorously <laughs> <Yeah>. on the <laughs> video. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an oh-duh moment for me. No, I figured as soon as I said it, you would absolutely latch onto it, but I knew for a fact I had the book on the shelf in our living room, so I grabbed it. And then basically the story is that this, uh, because a woman or a selkie, a, um, a seal woman can choose to take off her fins and uh, become mortal for a time. And so basically she's lured in by... Fins or skin? Skin. Skin. Yep. Thank you. Seal skin. He yep. just made me think of, of uh, um, Homestar Runner, Mask Guy. Yes. yes. Do you take off your hands and your face? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so yes, thank you, uh, skin. Uh, and basically, so she removes her skin, becomes mortal, and then falls in love with a man who, it, it, I say fall in love in quotation marks because he ends up stealing her skin and wa- locking it into a trunk for years, they end up having children together, and it's one of her children that ends up finding the sealskin hidden in a box, basically, in their attic. As soon as she finds her skin, she basically kisses the youngest daughter goodbye and leaves and runs back into the ocean. Mm. And so it's it's very, very... Say it with me. complicated. Generational trauma. yay um so just kind of speaking of what is probably going to turn into some generational uh trauma for a family rosemary really tough spot for her to to be in you know wrong place wrong time continuously ashley i think you had you had some you had some thoughts yeah a few it's it's funny comparing the the situation from the comics to the television show, primarily because in the comics, you have Dr. Destiny just straight out going in the middle of the street buck naked. So, you know, it it kind of gives you even more of a reason for for Rosemary to have suddenly slammed on the brakes because there's this person that is completely defenseless. Um, But... I've, I've always found John D to be a really interesting villain. And you see that in the writing of the show, adapting from this villain in the comics, because they're trying to find his why they're trying to find his, his modus operandi. And that makes me look at all of the things he says much more closely than maybe I would some of these other minor characters, because each thing he commits to on the page is a clue as to how he reasons with the world, what his worldview is. And, you know, I, I was wat- looking, reading this exchange where he's trying to get to know Rosemary, kind of 
oddly trying to break this tension that they have since they have to be in the car with one another in this case. Um, And he asks for her name and she says Rosemary. And then he repeats it, Rosemary. And then he says, that's for remembering. And I remember reading that panel and going, that sounds really familiar. Why does that sound so familiar? And that's because it's a line from Shakespeare. So let me put into context for you. It's from Hamlet. Uh, act four, and it's a line that Ophelia uh, delivers. And it's a really heartbreaking scene because this is after her father is murdered by her boyfriend, uh, Hamlet. And so she kind of just has a mental break, uh, completely collapses under this trauma, speaking of trauma, uh, and speaking of family trauma. And she is kind of lost it at this point. And it's important to recognize that in Shakespeare, you always want to listen to the ghosts, the fools, and the loons. Even if they're not trustworthy, they have something important to say. So you always want to take a look at those lines, which is another reason why I'm really focusing hard on uh, John D's dialogue, because he's always say, committing to something really important to the drama of this text. But the, the text that's being referenced here is specifically this. It's a little, it's a little monologue. There's fennel for you and columbines. There's rue for you, and here's some for me. We may call it herbigrace on Sundays. Oh, you must wear your rue with a difference. There's a daisy. I would give you some violets, but they all withered when my father died. They say I made a good end. And then she starts singing, and her brother's just like, this is hell. Like, she's completely <laughs> lost it. Um and it's, it's really heartbreaking, but it's interesting that John Dee is referencing that, um, that passage, passage, excuse me. It is interesting that John Dee is referencing that passage specifically because of that context, mm. because it's someone that's lost their mind because of uh, this grief and this trauma and this angst, this desire for revenge where they feel like where she feels like she probably has no agency in the situation. She's a woman in this world, Mm -hmm. um, in a monarchical culture. So there's really no out for her. The other important thing to note is that especially in Shakespeare, all flowers have meaning. And so Rosemary specifically was used when, when he says that's for remembrance and Ophelia says that's for remembrance it was meant to signify remembering, honoring somebody. Garlands of rosemary were often laid at graves because rosemary's uh, an evergreen plant. And so they're thought of as being ever living, ever life, everlasting. And so to put those on, on the graves of those who have died were to honor them and remember them and think of them as passing on into um, the afterlife. Uh, the other flowers that are referenced, pansies represent sadness, love and tender feeling, fennel, flattery, columbines, fidelity and marriage. Again, if you've read Hamlet, that's hilarious. Uh, and then violets, she says that she'd give them, <laughs> but she can't. They all withered because violets specifically reference loyalty and chastity and modesty, uh, which for Ophelia is a funny note because her her dad gives her a violet in the first time she ever enters the, a scene in the play, whereas now she's saying, I can't now. Both my dad is dead. Gee, you wonder why that is, Hamlet. <clears throat> and then uh, also all of the chastity, all of the morality, all of the modesty is gone from this space. So 
all of the violets have died. So we see a lot of parallels between a character that has kind of lost all hope and John D who kind of wants to take over because he in some ways has lost all hope, which I find really interesting. Also interesting, Rosemary specifically was worn um, by Greek scholars to help them remember what they've studied for academic exams. So there's the scholarship angle as well, which you don't want to read too much into it, but I just fi find it to be a funny coincidence um, as John D was a scholar, was an academic. So that's just a fun little tidbit about flowers and their significance. So anytime in literature, especially written by somebody like Neil Gaiman, who does his research, who does his homework, uh, definitely look up what the meanings are because they often attribute to the story being told specifically. Would have been much less, much less harmful if, if John D had just at the end of their ride been like, get thee to a nunnery instead of like <laughs> shooting her, you know? Right. No, exactly. And that's just, I, I just find it so funny. Um, he would be he would be familiar when it comes to any of the Shakespeare plays. One, a tragedy. Two, Hamlet, of course, one of the most dramatic, most angsty. And and so an, another thing that um, we we see in you know kind of that same section is even more kind of little t little tiny things, right? That we can kind of like pull the threads out on. And so I know one of the things, Ashley, that you had brought up is this uh, reference to zombie wolf. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I see chuckles from the entirety of the, of the MinMax uh, crew that are joining us today. So, uh, yeah, do you want to enlighten us on uh, what, what you're pulling on here? I'm excited about this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Sean had it right on the nose when we were writing up our notes for this episode. Because um, this one was new for me. It was just upon this third reading, I noticed it on the sign. So the panel right below the panel where he's talking about Rosemary, you see a sign that they're passing that says night of the living dead. And then it also says plus co-hit zombie woof. And I just thought that's such an odd, very specific name for something. Is that a zombie movie? I'm not familiar with. I'm very familiar with night of the living dead, but what is this reference? So this was new information for me as well. Um, zombie woof, which I'm sure most of the people on this podcast, uh, know already is a Frank Zappa song. Uh, and it's, it's so fitting for this specific set of panels, because if you listen to the song, it is very creepy sounding. It's incredibly creepy sounding. It's a very creepy vocal tone, mm. constant use of wah pedal to make it sound really psychedelic and unsettling. And it puts you on edge the entire time. So I strongly suggest that if you reread this issue, put this song on, on repeat, and it will set the tone for the reading the entire time. It is so stressful. And on top of that, if you read the lyrics, and I'll read a few of them, they fit perfectly. So you know they knew what they were doing uh i'll just i'll just start from the top read <laughs> 300 years ago i thought i might get some sleep i stretched myself out on an antique bed and my spirit did a midnight creep you know i'll never sleep no more it seemed to me that it just ain't wise did you ever wake up in the morning with a zombie woof behind your eyes just about as evil as you could be i'm the zombie woof i'm the creature all the ladies been talking about and it goes on uh, talking about how evil he is and all these evil things he's going to do. Also compares himself to the boogeyman. So it's just, again, perfect for the specific set of circumstances that John D has placed himself in and probably 
you know, poor Rosemary is experiencing right now. Um, mm. It's just a fun detail. Yeah, and a great song. I feel like that was one of my first, like, favorite Zappa songs. Like, when I was growing up, occasionally, like, my dad would just walk in the room and tell me to listen to something, you know? I would never know what it was going to be or, like, what the context was. But he'd just be like, here, listen to Frank Zappa. Or, like, here, listen to Lou Reed, you know? And that all worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think, again, I think, Ashley, you you made a good point, right? You know, and it was something that we talked about a lot. Like, these are these are all purposeful, Right? These are all purposeful decisions. They don't just kind of like, oh, we're just going to write these words up here. Right? These are something that like can kind of really, really pull in. Right? And so, you know, and someone sitting there in 1989 reading that is going to know, I have, I have missed it every time. I was like, I don't know. It's probably just some zombie movie that sits alongside of Night of the Living Dead or something mm-hmm. like that. And um, yeah. And so it's just, it's nice to see that, you know, what the purpose is uh, behind these things. It, and they're available for you to, to do the deep dive, right? Like, the, the, like comics can exist in that way as well. Exactly. Yeah, I wonder who put this one in there. Like, was mm. it Gaiman? Was it Sam Keith? You know, was it maybe even like Todd Klein or Malcolm Jones? Like, it's just such a little thing. You, you figure like, this is the kind of thing where someone else working on the book could just add that little mm-hmm. detail um, and it would be fine. Like, Gaiman is, you know, notably sort of, very in control of the panel structure and content so maybe it was him but you know these are all like young like nerdy guys who would definitely put in in something that even at the time would be a really obscure music reference Mm. you know this i think that song came out like maybe the mid 70s or something right before streaming everyone you you can't just you would have had to have like the record or your dad is shoving the cassette in and pressing play Mm -hmm. so so all those kind of things I think this also kind of segues very nicely into looking more at the character of D, Dr. Destiny, John, uh, and, you know, we have seen him introduced before in the previous episode when he, um, uh, when his mother visits him in Arkham, and then we find out his mother dies and leaves him the amulet of protection, which is what allows him to escape Arkham. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, who... Like, what is this character, right? And and who is he? And there's obviously when when the Morpheus is with the with Scott Free and they're looking through the archives, like they find him and they it's a very menacing picture you get of him holding that that dream ruby, right? Yeah, have any of you like were any of you familiar with this character outside of this context? Very vaguely. Yeah, yeah. nothing, nothing that I knew about. Yeah, I wasn't really either, but I mean he was introduced in 1961 Justice League of America 5 by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. And in his pre-Gaiman appearances, he pretty much does like exactly what he explains to Rosemary in the book. He wore like a skull face costume and initially was just another like super scientist criminal um, building an anti-gravity device and like capturing and impersonating like Green Lantern. And later he begins to experiment with the manipulation of dreams, which he performs by building machines that were powered by a mysterious crimson ruby. Oh, cool. And then here was like Neil Gaiman's bit of inspiration, you know, because until Sandman, we had no idea who Dr. Destiny really was or what his materiopticon, where it came from. So it's not until this issue that we really find out it was Dreams Ruby all along. Mm, you know, this is one of those cool. little like strokes of geniuses that Neil must have gotten a kick out of, like retroactively fitting Morpheus into established DC continuity, which we know he loves. Right, right. I would be interested to hear like what you all thought 
now that you've experienced sort of the character in the comic and you've experienced the character on the screen, like they're very different. I don't know. I would just like to hear from, uh, you know, from the crew here, for instance, Kyle, like, what did you kind of think about those differences? Well, I think visually, obviously, that's one of the the most noteworthy and and first things that you latch onto, right? Is he's he's much more gruesome. He's much more like the art in the comic books can be so much more soupy, I guess, right? Like <laughs> some of the, the characters have a very like liquidy appearance. Oh, I love and I feel that. Like, D is is a very very much fits that mold, right? Where it's just like they take the sort of saggy skin concept to just a, a whole new level, where it just looks like you just he looks like he's gonna melt at any given moment, right? Yeah, that he um, has. So I think visually he's yeah right, uh, and so visually I think he's he's rather. Um, stunning and terrifying in that sense and i think it, it it's almost more the visual at first than it is the the conversation like with rosemary that really starts to set the tone for for who this character is whereas like in the show that conversation between him and rosemary and our fear for rosemary's safety really is what sets the the tension in that scene whereas i feel like a lot of of john's disfigurement is more what's kind of setting it up for us in, mm. in the comic book. Cause it doesn't feel like it quite carries the same tension. Like you're still worried for Rosemary's safety and maybe, you know, having come at it from the show first and then the comic book, I'm, I'm going at it going, well, it's fine. Cause Rosemary's going to live through this encounter. And then you get to the frame where he oh. kills her and you're like, Oh, never mind. Oops. Oh, so you were approaching that for the first time and expected it to go the same way or. Roughly, I mean, it, it's so far from my perspective, and I, I realize I am I'm not a diehard fan, so other people will be more critical of this than I have. But so far, it seems like it's been a pretty solid and consistent adaptation in terms of following pretty faithfully with a comic book. And so I just kind of expected that that seems like such a huge plot point, especially when he gives her the amulet in the show that I was like, well, that, that has to be something, right? Like they've got to be pulling from something there. And then, you know, when you get to the resolution of that scene in the comic book, it's like, Oh no, that's, that's completely new territory. They're, they're entering into in the show. Yeah, definitely. And I kind of like wondered wondered about the that change like what kind of work is it doing you know why is it necessary or or is it extra like alan or ashley do you have any thoughts on you know rosemary change in particular i mean i've alan and i had talked about it a little bit after he reread this issue um, because he was also a little bit stunned uh to finish it and realize oh she doesn't make it I was I was thinking she was going to make it. I was kind of depending on yeah. that for hope. Uh, and I just started kind of nodding emphatically and saying, this is what I've been talking about. It's so much darker in the comics. Um, but I also think that John D's motivation in the comics is so different from his motivation in the show that the stakes yeah. are also different. You know, John D in the show so far, all of his motivations come specifically for a desire to, for people to be better in some regard and but also kind of holding out the fact that they probably won't be they'll probably disappoint him so when someone surprises him with their goodness he he would want to reward that whereas in the in the comics it's much more about control and ultimate truth being I'll get into some of this in my my last deep dive portion but 
ultimately becoming one with this like ultimate reality and being in control of that because he feels like he could do it better. Um, and who is in his way, who, who is consistently in the way of other rivalry authority figures, it's stream every time. Uh, because mm-hmm. the imagination has this sort of never-ending scope in this this sort of created realm that uh, he will always be in their way in some regard. So the well, he takes that like personally as his like he very much inhabits who he is as Dreamlord. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, so so the outcomes are going to be much more violent because there is no sort of relationship to develop with anybody. It is just entirely about control. And he recognizes that in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was I was I was really surprised to find myself like actually preferring the TV version here. You know, like I like the new sort of John D origin and i liked his interaction with rosemary and it made this issue feel like incredibly bleak like more Mm -hmm. bleak than i had than i had you know encountered it as being before but you know i was thinking like on a practical level in the comic book here gaiman's treatment of john d is like an example of a really old trope you know it's a it's a writer taking some like silly or minor villain and adding a new dimension to it so that that character becomes a major threat right it's done over and over throughout the history of american con- uh, comics uh, and sometimes successfully sometimes not pretty successful here like d's combination of this sort of childlike innocence from mm-hmm. being incarcerated you know like that like uh rosemary mentioned aids and he's like helpers you know like that's Mm. it's like it's like you you take pity on him there uh but then there's this obsession with drinking the light of his ruby right that's very creepy and 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 off-putting but um and you know in the show uh gaiman's like working from completely different materials you can't do that same thing you can't do the move of taking the silly villain and making him a threat because nobody's gonna know like there is no character preceding the show as you noted um so, uh, you know, I, th- I thought constructing the character, remaking this character from whole cloth, right? Um, there's no real cleverness to inventing, like, a villainous power-mad psycho on TV at this point. Like, mm, it's been done. Mm. We've sort of moved past that, I think. Um, so if we're to find TV's John D. remarkable, it's got to come from, like, some other quality, uh, which the show provides in, like, his acting, his performance, which I've spoken about, you know, enjoying at length, and that combination of unease and compassion um, we're forced to feel for the character. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm just, you know, congrats, Netflix. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, like, focusing in on the comic, Ashley, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, what are these kind of ultimate motivations that we're starting to get here? What are we starting to pull at here? Yeah. So if you turn two pages from where I last left off, you know, the Rosemary and the zombie wolf, you go past Martian Manhunter and then go to the next scene where he's with Rosemary. He's kind of starting to share uh, the root of a lot of his worldview. And he specifically says, I'm, a hermetic philosopher, uh, which is pretty indicative of how he functions and is also a really good clue as to how the apple does not fall far from the tree, uh, despite him emphasizing that he's a scientist. And 
you can tell that there's some, and maybe I'm reading into this too much, but I interpret some um, self-consciousness, some anxiety in him referencing that he's a hermetic philosopher and that he's also a scientist. Truly, he's a, a scientist because hermetic philosophy is specifically attributed to a synchronistic combination of the Egyptian god Thoth and the Greek god Hermes uh, named... <laughs> This is, it's so funny to say out loud, Hermes Trismegistus, which means Hermes the Thrice Great, who is not a real person. Um, he, was, he was made up ultimately, but Hermetic philosophy specifically combines this mysticism of Jewish and Christian faith along with Hellenistic philosophy and Egyptian cultism. He's suiting for Sandman, huh? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And so... Interestingly, the actual historic figure, John Dee, from the 16th century, who was a noted Welsh mathematician, geographer, occultist, astronomer, astrologer, personal consultant to Queen Elizabeth I, was also fascinated by and devoted to hermetic philosophy. And there are some like critical texts that hermetic philosophy pulls from, specifically the Corpus Hermeticum, which is a body of work um, referencing Greek texts of 16 books that are set up as dialogues between Hermes Trismegistus and a series of others, specifically this, this conversation between uh, Trismegistus and uh, Nous or the all-knowing or, or God. Uh, they also reference God as Pomandres. Um, so this idea of this like all being, so not necessarily a person that you communicate with, but just all reality, all scope. Um, the third or the second book or uh, reference is the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, uh, which is a shorter work. This is where we get the phrase as above, so below. You might have heard that referenced elsewhere, but that's where you get that phrase from. And then there's a third reference, uh, the Kabbalion, which is just the book of Hermetic philosophy, which is a modern text from the 1900s. Uh, three anonymous authors calling themselves the three initiatives uh, initiates. And this has a little less clout in the hermetic philo philosophical world, but it still references one of the three great texts of hermetic philosophy. And there are hermetic philosophy breaks down into three. Again, you'll see this, like this pattern of threes going through the entire structure the three parts of wisdom, quote unquote. We like threes. Humans yeah, like they threes. really like threes. Again, with threes. the Hermes Tr Trismegistus, it's the whole thing. Um, so the three parts of wisdom that they really focus on alchemy. So the operation of the sun, astrology, the operation of the moon, and then thergy, which is the operation of the stars, which focuses specifically on the science or art of divine works, the ultimate goal of which to ultimately become united with higher ideas, higher concepts, higher count counterparts in this sort of hierarchy of divine beings that they've created, leading to the attainment mm. uh, of the divine consciousness, which is why you've got, you know, Kabbalists really getting into this. You've, you've got people who are looking for some sort of specific hidden secret knowledge in scripture, trying to game them, uh, access to the all reality and morality really 
boils down to in this world, God brings good, demons bring evil, choose a side. Um, because all of it's magic. And so you basically want to have it's it ultimately you want to have power, you want to have um reason and intelligence and intellect. So the more you have that, the more power you have, the closer you are to God. You know, that in my mind seems to align pretty nicely kind of with one one of the things that we mentioned in, in the last episode is this like lawful evil construct that that John D is. Right. And I thought, you know, Alan, maybe you wanted to jump in and kind of I know you all do a sideshow where you uh, talk about when you where you play D&D, I think um, we do, in fact, just kind of like describe maybe a bit for folks like that. What is that lawful evil alignment? No, uh, lawful evil. So basically they are in the D&D world. You have it's a three by three grid. It's an it's a it's t- a total of nine total alignments. You have chaotic, neutral and lawful of good, neutral, and evil. So, like, a a lawful evil character is uh, someone who has who is through and through evil, but also has rules. Like, there are, there are lines that you don't cross uh, to the point where, like, they, they will have these very, very kind of strange structures that they set up for themselves because they, things have to have a process. Like, the they have to have things happen to have an order. Like to call back to the previous episode, like there are order. Uh, I forget exactly how Dream phrases it, and um, Morningstar repeats it back to him. But there are orders, there are processes, there are things that need to take place. That is a statement a lawful evil character <laughs> would make before decisions and things have to uh, be made. Yes. Yeah, so then, Ashley, how do how do those things kind of tie up here in? what we're seeing out of D in his conversation and importantly in his actions, because we see both, right. And we see those are, um, you know, they, they are consistent actions and words are consistent with, right, with this character. Yeah. Let me pull a quote real quick. While you're looking, I'll just say that I absolutely love that. Like in the 16th century, you could be like, uh, you know, court appointed, mathematician to elizabeth the first and be like such a freak you know like into like all the weird stuff i think that's great it'd be like if like you know like fauci gave his like covid press conference and then went and did like palm readings for the press corps like i i i like this world yeah yeah it's funny that you could i mean it probably would have been kept super on the down low because he would have been labeled a heretic but it's just it is fascinating because it was such a huge it was such a huge endeavor in late the late medieval period into the Renaissance because, again, rationality and reason were so critical to thinking and scholarship that it, it, it had a big impact on the scientific method. Um, because, again, people, if you think about alchemy and its place it had in, in society and it had in his, throughout history, it was just an, an, a thought of another science. And you were all, it was all just discovery. Um, but specifically going to John D, um, in the, the next panel or two panels over after he says that he's a hermetic philosopher, you know, they're talking about dreams and she, Rosemary specifically says they're just dreams, but for him, um, he specifically says people think dreams aren't real because they aren't made of matter of particles. Dreams are real 
but they are made of viewpoints, of images, of memories and puns and lost hopes. And that's really critical and, again, indicative of his approach to hermetic philosophy because the idea is that everything that's real, everything that's reality, everything that's of this divine realm uh, stems from the mind. The mind conceives of all of the things that exist there are good seeds that are planted by God. There are bad seeds that are planted by devils. And you basically act on those seeds that are planted. But the mind is sort of the sowing the bed to which those things sprout. So you've anytime anyone would say murder, that would a, that would be a seed planted by a devil. Um, there there is this sort of loose sense of morality that kind of borders on Gnosticism in the sense that um, possessions, um, anything that leads to material life could be considered extremely sinful. Um, and so that the only thing that offends God are, are these drives towards the material, towards the pleasures of the body specifically. So that's where you see then John D. I mean, he he clearly doesn't take care of himself. He does not invest in self care. He's not one of those spa guys, you know. But he is very invested in the the mental, the intellectual, and especially anything that dwells within the imagination. Which is why he he finds dreams so particularly precious because that's a breeding ground for all the other things he'd like to accomplish. It's just more territory that he can consume and control, um, and that. That is fleshed out further in the Hermetic philosophical creation story, which if you read it, you'll find little hints and you'll be able to tease out a lot of the world building that we see in Sandman specifically. Well, you see references to fate. You see references to the concept of endless. Um, you see references to destiny in ways that we see reflected in the comic books themselves. So it's, it is really, it's, it's, malarkey ultimately because we've since you know made scientific inquiries into a lot of this but it is interesting to reference in comparison to the comics and especially since there was such a fascination with and a, a pursuit of magic through hermetic philosophy the fact that there were specific orders much like the order that we see burgess run um there's the hermetic order of the golden dawn that was co-ed and Alistair Crowley, who in the 20th century was a huge member who then later came out with a bunch of secrets that were supposed to be kept secret from that order. There have been tons of books written about Alistair Crowley is very reflective to the coven that Burgess is shown leading in the very first issue. So there's a lot of reflective material here, a lot of references to this kind of thinking in the comics themselves. So you see Burgess as this coven leader, this magician. Um, and now you see John D trying to say, well, I'm a scientist. I'm doing this differently. Really. He's pursuing the same thing. He's just doing it in a different skin. And, and we really see this in a lot of modern fantasy, right? I see Alan kind of nodding as, as Ashley was going through. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my favorite book series, anyone who's listened to the MinMax podcast will know at, I have gone on ad nauseum for 18 plus hours of on air content on the name of the wind series by Patrick Rothfuss. I just, uh, I just read those in the last like two years because they're my best friend's like favorite book. And he wanted someone who could 
uh, talk he could talk with about the third book when it comes out. Uh, legitimately, I have lost count of the number of times I have read and or listened to this series. I'm above <laughs> 15, which I'm totally beyond. But actually, when you were talking about Hermetic Philosophy and some of the quotes that were used, the joke uh, in book two that Quoth makes when he's calling down lightning uh, in the fight with one of the seven, he literally says, and in a joke that only someone from the, from the university would understand, as above, so below, and he calls down lightning uh-huh. uh, using sciences to cause the lightning strike. Like, it, it threads completely through to that. And also with the way that this, all your description here, like my conspiracy hat has suddenly gone on for the Rothfuss universe. I won't go down that rabbit hole, but suddenly I'm seeing patterns, and it's like, ooh, there's a lot that actually crosses over here. So it's just fun to see those threads come out uh, with both of their shared love of Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. Right, did, right. Did any of you happen to see the short-lived uh, TV series Lodge 49? No. no. Okay, it's very alchemy and, and hermetic philosophy oriented. It's very funny and very heartfelt. I think it's on Hulu. I would definitely recommend it to pretty much anyone. It's great. But it only lasted a couple seasons. Yeah, as they all do. <laughs> All right, so going around the horn here, Martian Manhunter, he had some Oreos. What Oreos does he have? Sean, what's the flavor? What flavor does he have in the cupboard? Ooh, um, I feel like at the time it would probably just be regular Oreos, but that he would make the move to double stuff. Oh, he's a double stuff point, man. All right. I think. Yeah, just like, you know, over a long enough timeline in comics, everything sort of has to escalate, right? So it makes sense that he would go from the regular Oreos to the double stuff. I like it. I like it. Uh, Kyle, what about you? What uh, what Oreos are Martian Manhunter uh, consuming there in his kitchen? I, I actually have to agree with Sean, and it has nothing, I have like very, very little Martian Manhunter knowledge, but just from the little bit of it we have here, like if he's already got them stocked in his cupboard, he's going for like the heavy hitting stuff. So double stuffed for sure. Alan? Uh, I'm actually going to jump right on the train uh, wow. with this one. I think it is double stuff all the way. Uh, and like he's gonna go at that like a pro. Like he knows exactly what he's doing. They may already be pre double stuffed. He may have <laughs> gone through the surgical method of just having them ready in the bag, so when he needs them, he can get them. Because this is 1988, so you know, they, or 1989, double stuff might not exist. So he may be putting them together. Ashley, what about you? What do you? What kind of Oreo? Well, like you said, they didn't have many options back then. Back back in the old days when we just had plain Oreos, I feel like if he was if he was given the options that we have today, yes. he might dabble into a fun Fetty Oreo okay. just for like a quirky little fun time, especially if it's a comfort food. Mm. I thought they had made just to be on the nose. I thought they had made a matcha flavor one time as well, or maybe you can get that special. Mm. Maybe I'm thinking of Pocky. Probably in Tokyo. Probably in Japan. I bet they have matcha everything. Matcha everything. They have the Kit Kat, the matcha Kit Kat. I feel like we might have had those in the UK, Ashley. I think that may be Mm. where you're pulling that from. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Anytime I have a a matcha option, I take it. All right, you're all wrong. Uh, Mint, definitely, because he's green, they're green. And uh, why don't the five of us go and check out what's in this cupboard? We'll be right back. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. 
Did you hear that? Yes, yeah, sounds like someone fell. <laughs> This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! <laughs> Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. All right, so now we're shifting over into uh, the fan favorite, uh, looking at favorite panels and favorite characters. We'll start with panels, then we'll go over to characters. Uh, so guest first, as always, uh, so that way no one can steal yours. Uh, so Kyle, what was your favorite panel from this week's issue? Well, if I'm being honest, it was Martian Manhunter telling Scott, like, it's okay, I have yes. That That That's was a just panel. a good moment. But since we've already talked about that kind of extensively, um, we'll go with my second favorite, which is actually um, just a page or two later when we get the travel sequence where Dream is traveling through people's dreams um i thought the way it, it's technically like several panels but it's it's very integrated into the whole page um and i thought that was very cleverly done i thought that was a really interesting opportunity for us to kind of see um that process i think it it drew out some some lore some some sort of mythos around his abilities and, and it's one thing that i'm really appreciating about the comic is we're getting some some interesting nuance about exactly what his tools do uh, yes, um yes. that i don't feel like we really got in those first few episodes of the the tv series um so that was kind of a favorite for me i just i thought the way that it was set up um the fact that he like travels through a dog's dream at one point <laughs> in there is just kind of hilarious um and and it's so laden with uh, concepts there even because he's talking about this dog who was a sailor in a previous life, right? Right. And right. that that alone, that little sliver of this one panel is a whole thing that you could unpack. So I just I thought that was very cleverly done. I love that so much. Like I like this is one of the thing that I missed from the comic book the most maybe is the way Dream travels. Like in the show, he just like sand teleports or bamps <laughs> as Ashley puts it. Um but it, it here he like actually just like jumps like sleeping mind to sleeping mind across equivalent physical distances in the waking world right and he's actually going through their dreams it always makes for such a great um you know a great group of panels or pages or whatever it's so cool i miss it from the tv show so much well my guess is is that they are probably reserving it because they did an amazing job when he had to collect the items for the fates mm -hmm. oh yeah. yeah right yeah. and that's when we saw that happen and so yeah. my guess is, i mean and just you know you can think about it from like a tv production standpoint it is so hard to do yeah. that versus like to draw something a little bit more complex is, is definitely harder, but it's within the same like, you know, magnitude. Um, and so my guess is we will probably get it a few more times, but we'll have to see what happens. So Alan, over to you. What was your favorite panel? So I also was a huge fan of the uh, Oreos. However, um, I'm going to choose the Night of the Living Dead zombie wolf panel because <laughs> if you're paying attention, there's two things that you can pull from if you know obviously zombie wolf if you know that and if you know like the super details of uh george romero's night of the living dead because they're coming to get you barbara <laughs> they're coming to get you barbara and there is the character of ben who manages to survive the entire encounter shoot the other people who get contract the virus he shoots them so they survive and then he gets out only to be thought of as one of the ghouls and is shot anyway oh i always thought they shot him because he was black so there's that they're playing it 
Romero okay. is a whole other thing Fair that enough. I can go yeah. on hours for. But they're playing with the idea of could be a ghoul, 1968 black man being cast as the character could have been perceived as someone who is more animalistic, like is, is what Got they're it. playing on. So there's all of that going into it. And it echoes John D. She's going to die. Like if you yeah, know everything that's die. happening in that panel, <laughs> you know that this character is doomed. Ashley, how about you? What was your favorite panel this week? Okay, so I didn't know what my favorite panel this week was until I took some time to dust this week. And as I was doing so, I start, started going, dee, 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 dee. And then the panel came to mind and I went, oh, no. <laughs> so if you go past right after he shoots Rosemary, he's entering the Mayhew storage facility and he's just in the door sort of backlit. So you see just this silhouette and his little eyeballs and he's just singing to himself as he's waltzing in here with his gun and he just looks so goofy like every time I go past this panel <laughs> it both makes me laugh and makes me shudder because it is so very creepy it also it's funny how they've drawn the coat he's been given as well because it almost looks like a fur coat so it's just yeah it does it's just really goofy looking and it gets me every time especially his little hair wispies it's just it's it's so hilariously rendered to me that I was like, you know what? This is twisted, but I will take my chuckles where I can get them. He's like one step away from a Simpsons yes. character. <laughs> it, it does feel like I would say, I think that one panel, I did feel like was represented very well in the nonchalantless, nonchalantless, whatever, that um, uh, D in the television show has getting the ruby. Just yeah. kind of how he walks in, he gets the thing. I feel like he was definitely doing this. He wasn't singing to himself, but he was definitely doing Absolutely. It, so. I don't, I'm trying to think if I've ever just like sang my own name as a little ditty. <laughs> uh, and I don't think so. And that's probably healthy that I haven't, mm -hmm. but I'm like sort of intrigued. Yeah, I now. think he comes from a long line of narcissists. So, mm. you know. <laughs> yeah. All right, Sean, what do you got for us? Okay, well... I um, saw I saw you, like, he was on, I think, each one of your panels at one point <laughs> and just had to keep flipping. <laughs> I'll keep flipping. I'll keep changing. No, no, I'm going to go with my original. I okay. mean, I'm definitely not going to talk about that two-page spread that we covered <laughs> earlier with the car ride with uh, Dee and Rosemary, where it's like, in each panel, you, you, like, the viewer is, like, stationary. I'm not going to talk about this one. <laughs> uh, the viewer is stationary. <laughs> And then the car is coming close, closer. It's and closer. a Sean Sneak. <laughs> it is a Sean Sneak. <laughs> and it like zooms in on Dee's face. And then it's like they start to go past us. So we're seeing parallel mm -hmm. uh, with Dee and Rosemary, like, you know, like directly in front of us. And then as they go by and then we see the back of them, it's like we're standing on the side of the road. And it's such a gorgeous page, a couple pages, but it's not a panel. So I'm not going to talk about it in of this course. section. Of course. I'm obviously going to talk about what... Uh, Longtime listeners will know is a, is, a, is a personal fetish of mine is dream uh, as a passenger in any sort of vehicle. It just that's how I get my Sean kicks. Loves it. I look at and this is this is a this is maybe the best one in the entire series. Uh, dream just sort of hunched over in the front seat of the Greyhound bus, uh, being driven by a cigar smoking uh, pumpkin headed gentleman. <laughs> who we will undoubtedly learn more about. We have seen him at least one other time mm -hmm. so far. So so that's my fact. There's no way I can do go with any other. You might as well just like chalk me up for that now in any subsequent issue we talk about. <laughs> if there's Dream being a passenger in a car, that's my choice. Got it. It's good to have a thing, mm -hmm. right? We all have our things. It's good to have a thing. 
All right, so uh, next we are looking at your favorite non-Morpheus character. Alan, who do you got? I'm actually going to go with uh, Martian Manhunter for the reasons that we've already stated. It is the quick, on-the-ball nature to which he simply says, I have a secret stash of Oreos, and I inviting you, I'm inviting you to partake. Like, he knows that... The JLA, like they all have emotional damage and he is ready for it with that bag of Oreos in the cupboard at all times. Yeah, he's like the JLA dad. Yeah. Like he's the OG. He was there in the original formation of the team. So he's used to all this stuff. I mean, right. Uh, it's, a, it's a great portrayal of him. Yeah. Uh, Kyle, how about you? I think for me, I'm going to go with Scott Free just because, as Ashley pointed out, that that dream sequence was so jarring when you get to it. You just don't know what's happening. Like, all of a sudden, you know, like a lot of the times with transitions like this, you get some sort of clue, right? Like, maybe the frame treatment's a little different. They could have done, like, some swirlies or something to make it clear, like, oh, this is, like, happening elsewhere or it's in a, in a dream or something like that. So it takes a few panels before you're like, oh, okay, maybe this is, like, a dream or something. But I think it's just... Just so, like, especially now that Sean's given me a little bit more background on the character and stuff, I think it's it's kind of adorable in a way that he's, like, having this dream about, like, being adventurous and going through this whole... It, it's very, like, cute and quirky until you get to the part where, like, he has to say his name, right? And then all of a sudden it takes a really dark turn and he wakes up and it's still a dark turn now that you know the some of the backstory behind him. And so I think he's kind of my favorite just because he's such a sympathetic character in such a brief time where you're just like, oh man, ouch. Like, that's gotta be awful, actually. I'm sorry. All right, Sean, over to you. Who are you feeling this week? I mean, I gotta go with the same thing. I just have to, like, pretty much any time there's a Kirby creation in the series, I'm gonna go with that character. Um, but, you know, I particularly love, like, Scott Free, the Mr. Miracle character. If you see him, like, in costume, he's got such an amazing, like, bright, over-the-top costume with this, like, high collar and big cape, and it's, like, yellow and green and red, and it just shouldn't work. And he's a super escape artist. Like, none of this should work, but it's so compelling that he's, you know he's got this desire to like live this normal life and just like be in love and hang out. Uh, and yet he's got to get past this like trauma of his upbringing and this, their like effort to move beyond this. Um, and the way it sort of bubbles up and sometimes like awful ways and get, he gets pulled into these family conflicts, right. Between his, his father and his uh, evil God adopted father. Uh, it just makes for such compelling stories. I totally agree. I'm also on board with this character. And if you are interested in reading a really great story uh, about this character, check out the 2018 Mr. Miracle 12 issue series. That's that's it. You're not in for a big hundred issue read or anything uh, by Tom King and Mitch Gerards. Excellent. And Ashley, take us home. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with Dr. Jonathan Crane, mm. <laughs> the scarecrow. Uh, you know, speaking of flair for the dramatic, just his his first introduction into this issue, he's just hanging there, and you see, like, the echo of, hey, if you don't know who this is, here's a quick <laughs> I love clue. And I love that. I love that they feature that. Um, 
I've always loved Scarecrow even as, as a kid watching Batman, the animated series. He was the one that scared me the most. And so therefore I was the most compelled by him. Um, you know, I might have something to do with my mom having studied psychology when she was in college and, you know, pouring over all of her psychology books. But I always just, I think everyone kind of gets excited about researching phobias, knowing the names for phobias. So the fact that he can just like list those things off and the fact that he can also call what's going to happen to John D without, you know, really having much knowledge as to what his motivations are, what he's going to go. He's like, no, you're going to come back. We, we know I've seen this story a million times. You'll be back. <laughs> Don't you worry. And the fact that he just like very nonchalantly says that that's what's going to happen. Also the fact that he's managed to rig a harness in this asylum to be able to pull off this stage trick is pretty impressive. So resourceful, dramatic, Great hair. Have to go with Scarecrow. Sounds like it really should have been the Joker, though, right? (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone, so much for a wonderful discussion of Passengers. We drove into DC Comics with Granny Goodness, Martian Manhunter, the Scarecrow, and Scott Free, a.k.a. Mr. Miracle, and attempted to connect it into folklore more broadly. We then jumped over for some quick Billy Shakes, and the use of the name Rosemary, and some deep appreciation for Frank Zappa and the zombie wolf references that we see. We then got a bit deeper into John D, the differences that we see between him and the comics and the TV show, and how we felt like in both places, the character is portrayed in a really great way for both of those mediums. Kyle mentioned that being a TV show first watcher, he assumed that Rosemary would live, And that doesn't quite happen, unfortunately. Ashley then gave us a quick primer on hermetic philosophy and the path that D travels trying to be a hermetic philosopher and scientist. And lastly, we determined for once and for all that Martian Manhunter is certainly a double stuff kind of person. Kyle and Alan, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you again for having us. Yeah, it's it was fantastic. And Alan, where can folks find y'all on the internet? You can find us at minmaxpod.com, minmaxpod on all of the socials except Reddit where we're slash you slash minmaxpodcast. Uh, I'm at Alan H. Myers on Twitter. Uh, Kyle's at Stainbrook Kyle. And you, you all know where to find Ashley at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K. Amazing. Again, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.